comment form on their website, but you're limited to 2,500 words. You can tweet to the White House, but you'll be limited to 140 characters. You can comment on a Facebook post on the White House's Facebook page. You have all of these avenues to try to contact the president, but the average citizen of the United States can send such correspondence, but it's going to go through, be filtered by different layers of his administration to determine its relevance, to determine whether or not it's worthy of his time, to determine whether or not he needs to even read it. You see, ultimately, when you think about it, we don't have as much access to the leader of our nation as we might like to think. See, you can't show up at the White House and expect to meet with the president. There was a time in our nation's history when you could, to some degree. See, the president of the United States is not easily accessible. And I think that's worth thinking about because by comparison, we have immediate access to one greater than he. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, anyone can enter the throne room of God. There's an identity associated with us that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that I want to draw your attention to. So if you will open up to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And actually there are several titles and several identities mentioned in this passage that are all building from the Old Testament and, and identities and titles associated with the Israelite nation. But there's one thing in particular that stands out to me that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Christians are called. Peter writes these words, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what stands out to me is the fact that Peter calls God's elect, God's chosen people, he calls them a royal priesthood. I don't know that we always fully comprehend the significance of such a name. A royal priesthood. And to help us appreciate this, I want to give us some context tonight. I want you to think with me in terms of the temple, in terms of Old Testament Mosaic law and how spiritual life was structured then. So think about the temple for a moment. The temple was constructed as a representation of the presence of God among his people. In particular, that presence resided with the Ark of the Covenant and, and the mercy seat that sat on top of it. And wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, that's where God would be, in a sense. The temple in Jerusalem was the centerpiece of the Israelite faith. It was where sins were forgiven. It was where purification from illnesses was determined. It was where prayers were offered. It was the centerpiece of their faith because it represented the very presence of God. It's in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8 that God instructed Moses to let the Israelites make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And in the following verses, he gave instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant. And then he said this in Exodus chapter 25, 
verses 21 and 22. He said, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the, put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so for the Israelites, they associated the presence of God with the presence of the temple because it housed the ark of the covenant. Because of these very words that, G, that God spoke about dwelling with his people via this ark. And while the temple represented the presence of God, it simultaneously reinforced the idea for the Israelites that God was quite distant. See, the temple was not easily accessible to everyone. It was not the place for the average person, so to speak. That's because the temple, as I've mentioned before in other sermons, and as you've probably heard in other settings, the temple had this network of courts that determined how close you could get to the Ark of the Covenant. So when you approached the temple, you would first approach what's known as the Court of the Gentiles. It was the largest space of that temple complex. It was that large open air space that you might see around the primary facility that would be the temple proper. And it's the Court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus drove out the money changers. It's where Jesus drove out all the animals that were being sold. The court of the Gentiles is where anyone and everyone could go. All people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, could go into the court of the Gentiles. It was called the court of the Gentiles because you did not have to be a Jew to enter this court. But this was the closest a non-Jewish person could get to the Ark of the Covenant and vicariously to God. Inside the court of the Gentiles, you have what would be known as the temple proper, the actual building that housed the holy place and the most holy place. But around that building, you had another court called the Court of the Women. It was closer to the Ark of the Covenant than the Court of the Gentiles. But the Court of the Women, as you can figure out, had its own restrictions. To enter the Court of the Women, you had to be a Jew. You had to be a descendant of Abraham. You could be male or female, but you had to be a Jewish person to enter the Court of the Women. Gentiles who entered that area would be put to death. There, there is architectural signage found warning Gentiles not to enter this area because otherwise they might be executed. Inside the court of the women, you have another court. You have another area. This area was known as the court of Israel. And the only restriction here is you had to be a man. To get one step closer towards the Ark of the Covenant— you had to be male, a Jewish male more specifically. You can see how this court system's working. It's taking one parameter at a time and, and whittling down who can get closer and closer to the Ark of the Covenant. Because once you step inside the court of Israel, you now have one more area. The area that housed all of those temple um, instruments in the, uh, on the outside. 
the, the, the altar of burnt sacrifices and the, uh, and then the, the, excuse me, you have the area outside the temple and the area immediately inside the temple. Outside the temple, you have the altar of burnt offering. Just inside the temple, you have the, what's known as the holy place. It would have the candlestick. It would have the table of showbread. It would have the altar of incense. All of that area, both inside and outside the temple, was known as the court of the priests. Guess what the limitation is here? To enter this area, you have to be a priest, which means you have to be of a very particular tribe among the Israelites because the priests only came from the tribe of Levi. So first you, you have an area where everybody can go, but then to go into the next area, you have to be Jew, a Jew. To go into the next area, you have to be a Jewish male. To go into the next area, you have to be a Jewish male who is a descendant of Levi. And guess what? There's one more area. It's the most holy place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And to enter that area, you had to be the high priest. And it had to be the Day of Atonement. That's where the, the physical object that God chose to, to represent his presence set. And only one person could go in there one time a year. Can you imagine how easy it would feel like or how easy it would be to think that God is not that accessible when you've got all of these courts preventing you from getting closer to him? I think that's why it's so beautiful that we are called a royal priesthood. Because not everyone got to be as close to the Lord as the priests did. But how did that change? What made it different? How did we go from being distant from God by a temple complex to being granted access to God as a royal priesthood? Well, listen to what the gospel says happened the moment Jesus died. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with it. But according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At the moment that Jesus died, this great curtain that separated the holy place where priests could go from the most holy place where only one individual could go once a year. This, this veil that kept God at a distance ripped in half from top to bottom. And the tearing of that veil in two Implied that God was no longer so distant from man. And it's worth emphasizing the direction of the tear from top to bottom. That may seem insignificant, but think about it. If it ripped from bottom to top, that would imply that its dismantling was initiated by man. But the fact that it ripped from top to bottom implies that its dismantling was initiated by God. 
And I think Paul understood this change. I think Paul recognized the significance of this event. And I think that's evident in what he had to say in Ephesians chapter 2, particularly beginning in verse 13, where he said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And because of this, Paul referred to Christ as our peace in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 2, and then went on to say in verse 17 and 18 that he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that veil symbolized, well, more particularly, its tearing symbolized the dissolution of separation between God and man that was achieved by the death of the one who was God in the flesh. So through Jesus' death, he brought access to the Father. That's why John could say in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that Jesus not only freed us from our sins by his blood, but also made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And he's using there, John is using there, the language of Exodus chapter 19. Where God said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God always intended for his people to be priests. God always intended for his people to have access to him. But we kind of messed that up. Our sin compromised our priesthood. Our sin compromised our access. It was mankind's sin that got us kicked out of the garden to begin with. But it was Christ's sacrifice that repaired that broken relationship reinstalled us as priests and regained our access to the Father that we once lost. And what I really want to emphasize this evening is just how beautiful it is that we get to be a royal priesthood. See, because of what Jesus did, because we are now a royal priesthood, anyone can enter the throne room of God. Under the Mosaic law, the high priest was the only person that could enter the most holy, pray, most holy place. But Jesus changed everything. Because of his sacrifice, anyone washed in his blood can confidently enter the throne room of God. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 23. That's Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read this. It's a little longer section, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, if you want to read along with me. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
that passage starts off with the declaration that we have confidence to enter the holy place because of the blood of Jesus. See, we can walk beyond the court of the Gentiles. We can walk beyond the court of the women. We can walk through the court of Israel into the court of the priests. And we can enter the holy place. But we don't have to stop there. We can go beyond the veil. We can enter the most holy place. And not with fear, not with doubt, not with insecurity, not with feeling like we don't belong. We can enter the most holy place with full and complete confidence. We can enter the throne room of God. That's why the first century church did not, did not treat prayer like an afterthought. That's why the first century church prioritized prayer. You can read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, four things that the church devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Does that describe us devoted to prayer? Do we treat prayer, do we treat that access that we have to the throne room of God with the respect that they did in the first century? Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. What Paul is saying is that prayer should not be something we utilize after we've worried or after we've tried to resolve things on our own. Our priesthood was not an afterthought, and the price paid to achieve it was expensive. Therefore, our access should not be taken for granted. Our access should be confidently asserted and regularly used. Because of Jesus, anyone can enter the throne room of God. But it's even better than that. Because of Jesus, anyone can enter the throne room of God any time. Remember, under Mosaic law, a high priest could only enter the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, it's important to note that the high priest could not enter the most holy place without blood. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, we are told that he had to make a sacrifice on the altar for the forgiveness of the nation's sins and then bring the blood of that sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in order to stand before the presence of God. So in a sense, access to God was restricted by the timing of a sacrifice. But Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross so that through his blood we can enter the throne room of God any time. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27, we're told that Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. On two other occasions in Hebrews chapter 9, that phrase, once for all, appears. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, the author says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And that once for all phrase appears again in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26, where the author adds, 
He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The point of this once for all phrase is that Jesus' one-time sacrifice possessed eternal consequences. In one instance, purification from sin was accomplished for all time so that accessibility to God could be achieved for all time. And as a result of Christ's sacrifice, God does not limit us to a single day of accessibility each year. Instead, he is now accessible any time. I think that's why in the New Testament, and pardon me, I'm not descending for any other reason than I have to grab a Kleenex. I know that really makes you happy to hear. The New Testament repeatedly talks about the fact that our prayers should not have a time limit to them. What I mean by that is you'll have instructions like pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. We have these instructions that insist that we be constant in prayer. That we continue earnestly in prayer. I just referenced 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, and Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. And all of these passages are telling us, hey, prayer doesn't have a time limit. It's not connected to a particular occasion. Prayer is available any time. Do you utilize that availability of your throne room access? Or is your prayer limited to those times that we come together and pray? Is your throne room access just happening when the church gets together and prays? Or are you accessing it any time? Because that's what Christ accomplished. Because of Jesus, anyone can enter the throne room of God any time. But there's something that's even better. Because of Jesus, anyone can enter the throne room of God any time and anywhere. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God's presence was identified with that mercy seat which sat upon the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the temple. Thus, God was in one sense limited to one location. Jesus, as our high priest, serves at the right hand of God the Father. That's, that's the true temple. All these other buildings, the, the tabernacle and the temple, were just shadows of the reality that is to come. Spiritually, this is where we meet with God. This building is not a tabernacle or a temple. Sometimes we, we feed that perception. If God lives here, then as soon as we leave this building, we're leaving the presence of God. It doesn't work that way. The perception becomes that how we live out there doesn't matter if God's limited to this building. God's dwelling is not restricted to one physical location. He reigns in heaven, and because of the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the most holy place whenever and wherever we are. Since God is not restricted to location, then our righteous behavior should not be restricted to one location either. 
because God is everywhere. See, the author of Hebrews referred to the temple and more particularly the most holy place as an earthly place of holiness in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. But Jesus is no longer on earth. The author of Hebrews says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. In other words, Jesus has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God in the perfect tabernacle that is heaven. Thus, our access to God is no longer limited to an earthly location. Instead, God is omnipresent so that he can be accessed from anywhere. This means that communicating with God should be prioritized regardless of where we are. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus instructed us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And at the end of that chapter in which he had modeled prayer for his disciples, teaching them how they ought to pray, teaching them to pray that God's will be done, Jesus Jesus demonstrated that our priority should be aligning ourselves with God's will, and the primary means for us to do that is through prayer. Since we've been given unfettered access from anywhere at any time, then we should be seeking first his kingdom at all times. The point is, don't Limit your access to God to this place. God's everywhere at all times. And your access to Him must be treated with that level of understanding and a, and a respect for that fact. The Washington Post conducted a little research experiment back in 2007 that has always intrigued me. They wrote an article about it, and I'm going to read a section of that article in just a moment. But it's an article entitled Pearls Before Breakfast. The author of it was Gene Weingarten, and he explains how the Washington Post hired one of the most acclaimed violinists, a guy named Joshua Bell. He's one of the world's best violinists, and they hired him to play at a busy metro stop in D.C., The author writes this, Mr. Bell typically plays in major concert halls for sold-out audiences. People pay hundreds of dollars to watch him play the violin. He plays a Gibson X Huberman, handcrafted in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari. I probably butchered the last name because he's the most famous violin maker ever. But reportedly, Bell paid three and a half million dollars for the violin. On Friday morning, January 12, 2007, Joshua Bell arrived at the D.C. Metro stop. Three days before his, his Metro stop concert, he filled Boston's Symphony Hall. But on this morning, he pulled the multi-million dollar violin out of the case, placed the case on the floor, stood behind it. He seated his case with a couple of bucks and began to play during rush hour. This world-renowned and highly regarded musician played for people at the metro stop. The guy whose name and skill demands huge ticket prices played for free. People usually watch him from afar. He is usually on a stage in a large concert hall. Now his listeners could stand a few feet from him. He played six classical pieces for 43 consecutive minutes. What happened? How did people respond? 
people rushed by. Seven, seven people stopped to listen. 1,097 people passed by Bell during his free concert. Most people did not even slow down. They were too busy, too preoccupied with the tasks of their day. Some placed dimes or quarters in his case. He continued to play as people marched past him. People missed the opportunity to listen to the music of one of the world's most talented musicians. Only one person recognized him, and only $32 was dropped in his violin case. I share that story with you because all too often we are just like those people at the D.C. Metro stop. We pass by this world-renowned musician like them without ever realizing the amazing accessibility given. That one lady that recognized Joshua Bell was astonished that no one else recognized him, that no one stopped to applaud his performance, that no one realized that, that the performer that day was a master of his craft. Yet so often we pass by God without recognizing that he's the master of the universe, without celebrating his majesty and acknowledging his supremacy, without taking the time to be still and know that he is God. This evening, as I reflect on this royal priesthood identity that we've been blessed with because of what Christ has done for us, and as I reflect on the fact that we have access, anyone has access through the blood of Jesus Christ to the throne room of God anytime, anywhere, and yet so often we take it for granted, just like, just like the, those passerbys that D.C. metro station. So tonight, I just want to encourage us to remember the great blessing it is that we can access the throne room. We're not relegated by courts that are telling us God is distant and not accessible, that we can enter his throne room anytime, anywhere. Don't hesitate to use that blessing. Don't overlook it. Don't neglect it. And this evening, it may just be that you need some people accessing the throne room of God on your behalf. Maybe you need the prayers of a church family for what you're going through and what you're dealing with. Well, we offer an invitation, inviting you to come and share that with us so that we can. Maybe you look at your life and you are a child of God who neglects this great access that's been given to you. And you need to, re to repent of your callousness towards your access to God, or maybe you need to repent of your, your failure to, to fulfill the commands associated with prayer. Maybe you've never put on Christ in baptism, and, 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 and you've never had your blood washed away by the one who made the sacrifice for you, and tonight you need to make that decision. Gather here this evening to make sure we don't miss opportunities like we're missed in that subway station. And so if tonight, if you have any need, don't miss the opportunity that's available right now to address that need while together we stand and sing.